The Guardian. So, the colour of power is overwhelmingly white. The Guardian and Operation Blackvote have compiled data on the 1,000 most powerful people in Britain and found that just 36 of them are from ethnic minority backgrounds. Only seven of those 36 people are women. Every national newspaper editor is white. There are no non-white Supreme Court judges. Only two FTSE 100 companies have a non-white executive. And the heads of all of our military branches are white. Why are things this way? What can we do to change it? I'm Hugh Muir. And I'm Poppy Noor. In this one-off special, we're joined by Baroness McGregor-Smith, former CEO of Mighty Group and head of an independent review into race in the workplace earlier this year. And down the line, we've got Simon Woolley, head of Operation Blackvote. So the Guardian's run a series of articles called The Colour of Power. There's been some great writing and some great reporting, but we've also had some communication from a number of readers. And Poppy, I think you've got one of those. Yeah, so, I mean, looking at our community responses, one of the ones that I'm going to read now is it, it kind of was... It was one that came up in a lot of the huge number of responses we got from readers. And this is what this person says. He says, of course it matters. It's a significant marker of how far equality has come. It will be interesting to see what it's like in another 10 years. If the percentage is as low then, then I think we'll have a problem. But we must also remember that this is the UK and surely it is to be expected that there are more white faces everywhere. I'm sure if this study was carried out in India, the results would be reversed. I'm sure, Simon, you're going to be really interested in that because it was your idea to do this. Um, The idea that it doesn't matter, it's kind of weird to hear that now, isn't it? I think so. You know, we're 2017. It's a multicultural society, a team in dynamism uh, within our diversity. And it doesn't reflect neither at the top or just below the top. And it is worrying because, of course, these things matter on so many levels. I mean, you know, we have the Baroness uh, Ruby McGregor there in, in business. It matters to business. I think that it's well documented that business performs better with greater diversity. And of course, with politics, It absolutely matters, not just because it's morally right that we have government that looks like the people it seeks to serve, but in terms of policy, you know, how can you have policy that is most effective if you don't have the people with the understanding to guide that policy? So it it matters on all levels. And I guess finally, the other thing that matters about diversity at the top, in the middle and at the bottom is around the well-being of our society, that people need a sense of belonging. And they need to know that if they have the talent and the potential, that that will be acknowledged and be able to run its course and possibly go to the very top. I think as well, I would add that what you need at the top of all businesses, and I can talk more about the business world, is role models for the next generation. And I think it's very difficult that if you're a kid of a minority background at school, when you kind of look up at who runs all these organisations at the top and you realise that none of them have the same background, none of them look like you, it doesn't necessarily help you believe you can ever get there. And I think role models are massively important. The tops of organisations should represent very much the employees that they have. But what did you find was the reason for this? I mean, obviously we're quantifying what's happened, but what do you think, think, why do you think it was happening? I think there's a number of reasons why we've got such underrepresentation. I think if you take a look at where we stand today, you know, the population coming through school who are of a minority background is going to be nearly 20% of those individuals will be in the workplace within the next decade. So we need to have business 
that really looks and reflects its employer base. Employees need to feel that individuals on boards at senior levels actually do think about them and, you know, do share some of the experiences they share. But I certainly found doing my report, whether it was predominantly around unconscious bias and individuals of a minority background not even wanting to put themselves forward for promotion because they genuinely never believe they're going to get it and that wasn't across one industry that was across all industries and it didn't matter where you went if you take a look at the FTSE 100 48 companies out of the top 100 had meaningful data on where their ethnic minorities sat in terms of pay band um, and seniority And when you really analyse that data, what it shows you is, is that there's only a handful of people per business who come from minority background. That doesn't work for our young people today. That cannot work across the public sector nor the private sector. And I think there are many people in those organisations that generally now want to change it. And I mean, one of the shocking things from that review, it was this fact that when you look at the review you see it's not necessarily that people aren't qualified enough it's not that they don't have the right level of education we were actually seeing a large number of people from BME backgrounds who'd gotten into jobs and were overqualified. Absolutely and I think they feel they need to be overqualified today to even get considered because everybody thinks they could be a risk what because they look a bit different because they've come from a different place so looking a bit different is risky I say stand out and be successful and organizations need to be supposedly less risk averse we're very good in business but actually also the public and private sector do this all the time we tend to hire what we know and therefore you can never change representation if you're not prepared to hire something different I was lucky because a very very white male board hired me in 2002 that was by them considered to be a risk. It shouldn't have been a risk. You're meant to look beyond that and look at the talent and look at the qualifications go, well, of course they can do it. And I think that we've got to have more role models in every part of society that stand up and go, well, no, well, of course you can do it. And people should, board should back those individuals. We, we've got a community response in on this, actually, from one of our readers. And she says, I'm an Indian woman who works for a prominent NHS trust. I'm highly educated and I've got an MBA from one of the top business schools. I've worked extremely hard. Every time I ask for a career advancement, however, I'm told that I don't have the relevant experience and enough numbers of years working for an NHS or other organisation. But I've seen special positions being created for white colleagues who are far less experienced and they're still being promoted. I think if you take a look across the NHS, it's known very much as kind of the snowy peaks. It kind of says there's only, I think, one chief executive of a minority background. I think that's got to fundamentally change. I think they've got to really rethink through where their talent's coming. If you take a look at Talent Pipeline, in any organisation, public or private, I think a huge amount of work needs to be done on the pipeline and to look at the developmental needs of individuals. I have heard many stories like this woman's and I have every sympathy, but I think you've got to have data, you've got to have aspirational targets and you've got to say to your senior teams, You've got to change. Because Simon, you I think we've spoken in the past about that problem you have when you get people into organisations, but either they jump out again or they're yeah. bounced out again or they just don't progress. That, that's absolutely right. But even just getting into these organisations and institutions is a feat in itself. And, you know, one of our partners in this project, Green Park Recruitment, and the very able Raj Tulsiani, he's been often highlighting the fact that many of the people that are coming into his recruitment have said that they've had to change their name just to get an interview. 
In fact, wasn't it David Cameron mentioned that during a party conference speech? He said in 2016 that it was a scandal that African women had to change their name just to get in the door. But of course, you can change your name, but what happens when you're in the door? What happens when you're there and people feel uncomfortable? And even if they do take you on, as the woman in the NHS said, you're not getting through the ranks. But you know what Ruby and others have said, and I think this is really the fundamentals to this groundbreaking project, is that you illustrate it, we highlight it in colour, as a matter of fact. And I think that the biggest thing about it is as if we as a nation, we in politics, in business, as a society, can be brave enough to acknowledge the lack of diversity, to acknowledge the reality. I think the biggest challenge for all of us will be whether or not we deny it. If we get past denial, then we can begin to find solutions to close the gaps. Yeah, and I mean, if we if we take a step back for a second and, and think about what the scale of this is, when we think about the BBC pay scales, which got released recently, and we found that a third of the people in the top paid bracket were women. Yeah. So you're looking at about, at a stretch, two times less than how they're represented in the population. In this research, 3%, that's almost five times the amount of, of BME people actually in the country that aren't represented at the, the top. Disparity, the disparity is, is huge. And you know, I, I think that it's fantastic in this debate because we haven't got to argue whether or not it exists. We all know it does. Ruby's report said the Equality and Human Rights report. In a few weeks' time, we're going to have the Race Disparity Unit. There's mountains of evidence that our biggest challenge will be whether or not we'll end up with cul-de-sac debates on the legitimacy of these findings rather than, you know, how do we put it right? I think we can put it right, though. I think so many reports have been written. We don't need any more reports to tell us the same thing. However they're written, they say there is a huge underrepresentation of individuals from a BME background in organisations today. And whatever the numbers are, the numbers are not good enough. The solutions are not as difficult as people think. I think we'd all agree, if you publish your data that gives you a starting point, no one's looking to be critical, but just publish your data. Because what that does is tell you that actually no one's any good in any sector, and everyone's got to do something about it. But if it's as easy as that, why why don't people do it? Is it a sin well, of omission really, or a sin of commission? I, I think I think everyone should do it. And if they don't do it on a voluntary basis, I think it should be put through legislation. But you've done reports, other people have done reports as well. So if, if everyone knows what the problem is, is it that actually well, they don't really want to change it because it, you're saying it'd be really easy to do that? What I'm saying is if you start publishing the data, then you can start to say, okay, what do we need to do, right? We need some targets. We need unconscious bias training. Mm. We need to start to really go through every level of our organization and really think about diverse shortlists for candidates. Every time we promote mm. somebody, we will make all those things mandatory. But if you never publish anything and you've never looked at it, as half the FTSE haven't, well, quite frankly, it's not a priority. How do Ru you know? Ruby's right mm. in as much as data needs to be published. But the, the first starting point is acknowledging the problem. The second is leadership. Leadership at the top that says, I will change the culture. I will change the mechanisms that are blocking talent. And the mantra for business leaders and political leaders is that this is not a moral imperative. This is a self-interest, business and political effective case that we cannot be the best we want to be unless we solve this problem. And I think with that driver, rather than, oh, we've got to do something for these poor black people, we've got to do something for these women, 
is not getting is not getting us past go, much less to a place we want to be. And whilst recruitment is important, I would argue we've got to take a few more steps back and look at education, because it's those tools within education, those degrees from certain universities, that make the road to success either difficult or or easy. You know, I wrote in the Guardian that this week, and the data was saying that there are half a dozen schools that account for the same amount of Oxbridge intake as 1,800 schools. Now, whilst we have that shocking disparity, that class and privilege, that those on the other side, the 1,800, what chance have they got to be our captains of industry? I mean, I think this is where we get into some of the really interesting things that are going on beneath the surface here, don't we? Because a lot of what I found in my research was that people really think whether subconsciously or consciously, that this is an issue that BME people need to be dealing with. And actually, it's not clear why it should be just an issue for BME individuals. The other interesting thing, though, is that when that discussion comes round over, there was the McKinsey report, for example, that showed kind of how much more revenue companies bring in when they're more diverse. I mean, partly what's interesting about that, though, is that we're having to justify very basic things on the basis of, of economics as if it's never fair enough to say actually a black man should be able to be hired for his talent just as much as a white man could i mean isn't it interesting that that's it's very interesting very interesting and somewhat depressing but you know a lot of us have been fighting for decades uh, often on the moral argument that it's the right thing to do it's the decent thing to do and uh, you know we haven't got very far with that so we've got to whether we like it or not, appeal to people's self-interest. And if the bottom line is the self-interest, then I'll go with that too. I'll still bang the moral campaign too, but I want to get us to the, the promised land. It's kind of sad when the moral argument doesn't cut it, isn't it? Um, Ruby, you've run companies, and I'm mm. interested in what a company doing this properly would look like. What would it be doing? And in terms of culture, I suppose, because if you've got people coming in and they don't stay and they don't progress, what can you do? What could you do in one of your companies, I suppose, Look, if to change that culture? It's very different in every company and it's very difficult as well because we're all biased. It doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, what our backgrounds are, we all have natural biases that we don't necessarily understand. And without realising, those biases tend to play out in the workplace by everybody and everyone's very, very different. The reality is that you need to do a significant number of things. And Simon's right, leadership starts at the top. So it's got to be boards of organisations have got to say, we take this as something that's a really serious issue. We want to focus on it. And we want all our teams to think about the following things when they recruit, when they promote, how they mentor, who they sponsor. And they all need to remember that we're working on a pipeline of diverse talent that we want to see at the top of our organisations. The other things we have to do is also go to the fund managers who own organisations and say, what do you ask about the stocks you invest in? Because in 14 years, I think I met one individual in the city that was with BME background. And I think that's challenging at certain levels because I think you've got whole industries where at a very senior level you haven't had BME representation yet. So there's no surprise that they don't understand. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a second. Okay, so we've talked a bit about what the problem is. It'd be interesting, I suppose, to talk about what you could do about it because there are 
a lot of suggested solutions. As we said, people have talked about this a long time. I mean, what do you think, for example, uh, Ruby, about an idea like reverse mentoring? And the BBC, I think this week, talked about having reverse mentoring in terms of age. And what about reverse mentoring in terms of race and culture, perhaps? I think it would be a really good thing to do. I couldn't you know, one experience I had that, that changed me was in an area of a particular disability where I was asked to have someone shadow me for a day who was a young lady with cerebral palsy. Now, I never knew anything about cerebral palsy and it made me think a little bit wider. So imagine if you're in a very predominantly very white culture and you, you haven't never mixed with anyone from a BME background. I think reverse mentoring could be great for you because you only know what you know. So... And I also think whenever you promote, because the challenge is, is quite often promotion if you do get through the door, you've got to have a diverse shortlist or you don't promote and you keep looking. The challenge is, of course, is you just think about when, when you do long lists of candidates for a job and you then go to a shortlist. The first thing you do is you tend to look at what their names are and where they worked. Yep. Well, why don't we go with no names? Hmm. Why don't we just go with Fine. talent? I think then Ruby's right. Is. I think Ruby's right to a certain extent. I'm not quite sure about the the known names because the person's got to, to show up at some point. But th- there are ways to get from A to Z. I mean, Operation Blackbirds. We've been extremely proud of mentoring people into positions of power. You know, people such as Helen Grant, former minister, Clive Lewis, former shadow minister, and Baroness Saida Varsi. And when we mentored these and the many people that have now become councillors and, and magistrates, they would tell me the most astonishing stories that a twin young black woman with an MP and the young woman rang me up and said, Simon, my MP, she can barely shake my hand and she can barely look, look me in the eye, but I haven't done anything wrong. And I said, it's okay. It's okay. She's probably a little bit uncomfortable. She wants to mean well. And that what we're able to do is to guide people through the minefield of this type of interaction. And we needed to equip our mentees with the skills to make the senior bosses feel comfortable. I know that sounds extraordinary, but it's, mm. it's a, matter of, a matter of fact. So we need to be able to get the space so we can take them on this journey. And many black people will know this, that we often go into a predominantly white room. And whether we're conscious of it or not, we have to go into that room and make them feel comfortable. Mm. This is where kind of things like reverse mentoring, I think, really stand out to me because, so, you know, for example, we've got a um, community response here where somebody says, you know, if you are in the majority and you believe that you've got there through meritocracy, well, that's one reason to kind of not take these issues seriously. But on the other hand, it can cause a kind of bitterness or feeling of inadequacy from, from people in minority groups. So partly, I suppose, we could look at that as a kind of natural phenomenon. If, if you're not realised the the experiences of minorities in in your workplace if you're not realizing the ways in which they feel that they've been blocked from opportunities or that they felt isolated or the obstacles that they come across then you know you can see why somebody might think from their own perspective this is all about meritocracy interestingly though some of the research sort of suggests that that these softer forms of intervention kind of unconscious bias training things like that can can often have the opposite effect because I mean I suppose the the most 
extreme example that you've got is the Google engineer with um, his diversity memo. You know, he, he had to do this unconscious bias training and he comes out of it thinking, do you know what? I don't believe in any of that. Actually, women are just in, inferior in this workplace. And, you know, can pointing out to people that they are biased or, or that everybody's biased, can that alone change things without structural changes, without targets or quotas or things like that, which actually kind of meaningfully embed that change? I wonder what people think. You talk about the, these kind of soft interventions, all about the harder ones. Now, maybe, maybe slightly devil's advocate, but people always say, oh, we can't have quotas. Maybe we should have quotas. Maybe if the quickest way from A to B is to have a quota, maybe we should. And, and Simon, I'm sure you know about the Rooney Rule. And, and, and for those listeners who don't know, the Rooney Rule operates in the National Football League in America, American football. And basically, it means that when you advertise for a head coach job, at least one of the uh, people on the shortlist has to be a minority. And of course, there's no guarantee. It doesn't mean that they get the job, but it puts a lot more people in the mix. And they found that a lot more minorities have actually got jobs or maybe they've been given deputy head coach jobs and they've got the next job. It's just brought a lot more people into the mix. Yeah, and I, I wrote a paper for the then Labour government when Gordon Brown was in office about all black shortlist. And the argument I put forward is this. How do we ensure that talent goes from A to Z? I don't care how you do it as long as you do it. And of course, if you leave it to people's own devices, then nothing much happens. And so the, the short way of doing it is saying, whilst we are correcting the structure, whilst we are removing the barriers, we need to circumvent mm. those blockages to ensure talent can go from A to Z. That's why we have all women shortlists. That's why I proposed that we had time-limited all BME shortlists. And people then said to me, well, of course, Simon, that if you had an all BME shortlist, they'd be highlighted as only being there because they were black. And my response to them was, Tell me how many women that you can name that came through one of all women shortlist. Can I just challenge slightly this this quota point? I, you know, I hear a lot about quotas on women. I hear a lot about quotas on race. Having run a large business in particular, it's really quite difficult to do. It's not because I don't necessarily believe that they do have their place occasionally, but I genuinely believe that aspirational targets and actually motivating people to do the right thing in the long term can have a better impact on an organisation. I think quotas can give you quite a short-term tick box solution and then you don't necessarily get the best talent rising to the top. And I have got a bit of a thing around getting the best talent to the top. I think you've got to use a variety of interventions. I think data works. I think absolutely having the right shortlist works. I think making sure you go through real scrutiny on how you promote really works as well. But all of it takes time. But I think bigger than that for me is the, the other interventions that could easily work. You know, the government intervention doesn't need to necessarily be we'll do quotas, but they could turn around on the billions they spend with their supply chain and say, well, until we see you more diverse, we're not going to spend our money with you. Mm. Organisations can do that. Everyone can do that if they are in an organisation. They can persuade their supply chains to be. And then my final point around individuals is if you want to be brilliant and your organisation isn't going to give you that, then the other choice as well is to go and find the organisations that do, because some will. And gradually, businesses will see it for what it is. But if you want to hire the best talent and you want it to stay with you, mm. in the end, you're going to have to be more diverse because the world is really fundamentally changing. And the smart ones are beginning to see that. I kind of agree with you, but, but also you hear an argument when you talk about the best talent. Well, someone has to make an objective judgment as to what is the best. 
and actually a lot of people just say well actually what I think is the best is something that looks like me so in a way just look saying they're going to hire the best doesn't really help you I never really managed to hire anyone that looked like me I wish I had really <laughs> um, I was struggling finding the right talent coming through a pipeline I, I think we've got a real challenge around the pipeline across the industries so it's funny I remember back in 2001 before the mayoral elections we brought over a mayor from uh, Missouri Emmanuel Cleaver when he came into his office, he had a very, very diverse city there. And he said to his chiefs, I want my upper echelons to look like the city that we seek to serve. And I want the very, very best as an absolute criteria that if you don't get that right within 18 months, consider yourself unemployed. You know what happened in 18 months? They had brilliant people at the top and in middle management that looked like the city it sought to serve. Leadership that drives this through can only be the way that to, to, to solve this problem. Simon, I, I agree with that, but I also think you need a lot of role models to be really brave about race. You know, for me, yeah. as an example, I didn't really speak about race till this year. It's not something I wanted to talk about. And there was a reason for that. That was because I wanted to fit in. And we shouldn't underestimate how many individuals of a minority background don't want to talk about this issue. It took me to be really unusually brave. And when I told my mother... I was going to report on race. She told me not to do it. She said, you've spent your life, Ruby, trying to fit in. And it's another thing that's going to make you not fit in. She's actually really delighted I did it now. But it really scared her. That's really interesting, even at your stage. Yes, absolutely. uh, Early in my career, I, I didn't want to do any stories about race because I didn't want to be typecast in that way. And actually... With some of the newspapers I worked for, I, I thought that they, they would get up to mischief if, if they had a black reporter. Mm. They'd send them into black areas and basically mm. they'd ask you to do stories in a way that was very skewed and I wouldn't want to do them. So I, I went nowhere near them. I then made a calculation later on that, OK, I think that I'm senior enough now. I can do them without someone making judgments on me. But I'm surprised that you, at this stage of your career, felt that you couldn't Absolutely. go near it either. And don't underestimate how every business leader has felt, that they feel so unable to maybe sometimes talk about the things they'd like to talk about. And it's difficult because it's not something I've wanted to discuss. I've done it because what I've seen is I don't see the UK moving forward in business on this issue. I see it moving backwards, I think, it's unhelpful if the economy is not thriving because I think everyone gets more risk averse and I think poor economies don't drive diversity. So I think there's a lot of work to do on the economy and for businesses to be able to thrive and then actually to not necessarily do riskier things but to be more more able to do the things that really matter mm. as opposed to constantly being in crisis, can't invest, can't do x y and z mode but i i think it has been difficult and i think we shouldn't underestimate how many individuals who have done well don't necessarily want to stand up as role models and one of the reasons i agreed to do it this year was i was hoping that might make more stand up and talk about it and then that really helps the pipeline of talent i think that's so profound i think that's so profound what ruby's just articulated and i I hear it so many times uh, not least on uh, black ministers Mm. is that that the fear is is that if they venture into the territory of race equality, then everything that they've built up, all the, the breadth of expertise will be rubbished because they'll be seen as the bleeding heart wanting black social and racial justice. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's this kind of perennial issue of not wanting to be the representative. And it's, it's you know, in, in the interviews that I did, from the most radical interviews that I had to the more kind of traditional interviews that I had, almost everybody mentioned 
in some form, I, you know, I can't be the black chairman or I can't be the black politician. I, I have to just be seen as a politician or, you know, and other people saying, you know, seven years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say this. And, and it's really good that I can now. But it's, it's sort of a, a weight on people. The tragedy is, Poppy, that because of the system, these business leaders and politicians are forced to make one of two choices. Either they can be multifaceted at the expense of never talking about race or to talk about race and be seen as one-dimensional. Yeah, and I mean, it does become a double bind, doesn't it? Because ultimately, the response often to people not speaking about it, I mean, you've got the whole kind of... OJ Simpson famously said, I'm black, I'm not black, I'm just OJ. And the kind of the, the backlash around that for not wanting to be a representative of his race. But... It's not an issue just for people from BME backgrounds to carry. It should be an issue for everybody. And it's it's an additional burden that's not expected of you if you're not from a BME background. Well, I, I think at least... At least we're talking about it. I mean, that, that's one thing. At least it's out there. Compared to a decade ago, when it was never spoken about, we've made some progress. At least we're prepared to talk about it today. Do you feel better, Ruby, having spoken candidly about the challenges? Um, it, it reminded me too much of of my childhood when it right. was horrendously challenging so I didn't particularly enjoy it <laughs> I don't I can't say any of it's been a remotely enjoyable experience but I would say I'm really delighted I did it because I think it's really important for me and everyone of minority background to talk about our experiences so when I was growing up in Plasto um, in the 90s it was still quite bad I used to get called racist words by fully grown women somebody threw a brick at me in the street it was really a common thing Mm. for me to be racially physically attacked or verbally Mm. attacked but one of the interesting things about the way that it is now I think is that then I never felt disempowered actually because I just felt like somebody was being horrible to me and it was completely unjustified now it's so subtle that you can't tell whether it's happening to you or not so So you're Mm. in this position of of Mm. thinking and it's that that subtlety and it's Mm. that subtlety that can almost drive you crazy because well I don't think it's subtle at all it's factual okay very few people at the face. top of very few people at the top of organizations whether it's media healthcare business no matter what it is is predominantly white and it ain't going to change unless we have some intervention that's the truth so that's all we've got time for today thanks so much to our guests simon willey and baroness mcgregor smith for joining us you can find out more about The Colour of Power on theguardian.com. I'm Poppy Noor. And I'm Hugh Muir. The producer was Gabriella Jones. Thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.